Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. You can learn more about our courses, our community, and everything we do at onecommune.com. Okay, so on today's episode, I welcome back my good friend and frequent guest on the show, Justin Michael Williams. Recently, Justin came to Topanga and filmed a commune course entitled Healing Conversations. And boy, are we going to need to have some of those in the coming months and years. This was a rare opportunity for me to record a podcast in person, properly socially distanced, of course, and compare numerous nonviolent communication techniques with which Justin and I have been experimenting. So we navigate some choppy waters from cancel culture to abortion to racial justice. Hopefully you enjoy this episode and leverage it in service of having the difficult conversations our country is going to need to have in order to heal. So you can pre-register for free access to Justin's course, Healing Conversations, at onecommune.com slash healing. And follow us on Instagram at onecommune and at Jeff Krasno. Oh, my name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Justin Michael Williams, welcome hey. <laughs> to the Commune Podcast. I think I believe this is the third time. It, which, it is the third time, which is a world record for ah. the com- You've eclipsed Marianne Williamson and a lot of other <laughs> prolific folks. You're in pole position now. Oh my gosh! And I, but, but this is the first video. Yeah. Which um, and first time in person. Yeah, which I think that puts me at a significant disadvantage. Why? Because <laughs> you're so beautiful. Oh, stop it. And I'm 50 now. <laughs> Shit. It's I'm actually fair. 86. Oh. It's just the, you know. Well, you're doing something right. <laughs> All right. So we aren't the only people in the world to witness the fraying of our social fabric. Um, polarization. Um, that exists in our political landscape, the vitriol that gets exchanged on a regular basis between folks of different political identities, etc. And this kind of disintegration of social cohesion has real impact. And we can see that in the fight for social justice. We can certainly see that in COVID, um, that kind of all of our great projects of humanity have been predicated on our special human ability to cooperate with each other flexibly at scale from building the pyramids to building the infrastructure of this country and other countries and in the absence of that cooperation society begins to break down and i I think that this is why we are both very focused on this issue of how we heal and how um, we can implore people to recognize each other's common humanity and as a means to doing that engage in thorny messy but very very necessary conversations 
And I know that that's been top of mind for you this entire year, but particularly this week, as you've been focused on actually creating curriculum around healing conversations. Yeah. So just as a broad place to start, like where do we begin to have those healing conversations? How, how do we start that project? Well, you know, it's interesting the way that you put it, because I think the idea of integration, right? Integrity, integration, and us being able to come together like a complex system as complex as humanity, <laughs> let alone splitting humanity up into like races or countries or all these things that we've chosen to do as people. And one of the things that we know that's just consilient across pretty much every form of science and beyond is that it takes, it takes things being differentiated, but those differentiated parts coming together to integrate into one in, like you said, cooperation or harmony or in synergy for anything to work. Right. And we know this, like when we, when we think about this in our own lives and our own personal growth and well-being and mental health, it's almost easier for us to contextualize because we can think about the disintegrated parts of our own selves, right? And how when we have disintegrated parts of ourselves, we experience trauma because we have this dysregulation or disorganization rather of like the experiences that we have in our lives that we can't find meaning from or that haven't integrated or the parts of ourselves, the shadow versus, you know, the part of ourselves that knows that there's something greater or the inner critic versus this where none of us, nobody listening to this is going to be new to that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it in that context, we can look at what's happening in the world and we can almost see it as a reflection or a mirror of these disintegrated parts of ourselves. And one of the things that I think is just crucial for all of us to remember is that the internal work that we're doing can have a very direct effect on our ability to show up in the world right now to create space for healing conversations if we create a pathway to do that. It's not mm. automatic. You know, like people like to say these words like the internal work that I'm doing like affects the world, <laughs> not automatically, <laughs> you know, right. there's like, a bridge. Yeah, there, it, it, you <laughs> have to create the bridge. And, you know, there's this quote by um, Orlando Villaraga, and he has an amazing quote that I love. And it says, courage is the bridge between hope and justice. Hmm. And so when we can step into that space of courage, step past our fear, step pa not past, step into yeah. our fear, step into our anger, step into the perfectionism, and ultimately transmute that or transform it into courage, then we have the ability to turn some of these spiritual tools or wellness tools or our hope and faith in humanity into actual justice in action and reality. So in all the programming that I'm looking to create right now, it really is about that bridge and not just building the bridge, but actually like walking people across the bridge. And you yeah. know, you're like up high, imagine people up high on a bridge like, oh my God, yeah. you know, like I'm so scared. Like I don't know if I'm gonna be able to walk across. It's like, right. come on, we got yeah. you. It's not a tightrope. Yeah, we got you. <laughs> it's got some girth. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's funny that you use the word courage and you know, Brene Brown has been uh, extremely useful at, at creating I love the bridge Brene between so much. Yeah. courage and vulnerability to the point where they're almost synonymous yeah. To me, yeah, totally, and I, th and I think that what you're talking about also requires a tremendous amount 
of vulnerability yeah. um, of, and humility, yeah. the ability to, um, to admit that you're wrong or ask why or be open to other ideas, uh, to be reflective on one's own biases. Yeah. Um, so let's ground this in a, in a specific instance because yeah. you wrote uh, an article and you're a fantastic writer. Um, and, uh, but you wrote an article recently about an experience that you had on an airplane right in the, the Alpenglow of, of the, uh, of the election on November yeah. 3rd. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that experience and that can be a bit of a springboard. Yeah. For so, the you know, I was, I, it was actually a really, um, it, a mind altering experience for me because, you know, sitting next to this woman, you know, on an airplane who was a Trump supporter and had her MAGA, you know, like gear yeah. handy. And and here's my black self, you know, like <laughs> sitting next to her. I'm like, oh God, universe, for real, you know? <laughs> really? And, and especially like leading right up to the election and the whole thing, I was like, wow, okay. And so I always ask the question of myself, like, what is this happening for? You know, and if anyone's gonna be seated next to this woman, with all the work that I'm doing in the world, it like it should be me, yeah, you know? Sure. And I'm still scared. Like I'm still sitting next to her afraid. Like mm. felt my heart racing. And it gives me so much compassion for anyone who wants to get into having a conversation across a divide. Because if I'm scared and I teach this shit, like, <laughs> of course, right. like, anyone like, is afraid, you know? Yeah. Just she's feeling... like BLM is sitting next to right. me. And meanwhile, she's over there, like, texting right. her husband. Who knows? I'm just yeah. making that up. Yeah. But, but, you know, we had this conversation, and it was really fascinating to witness as we were both talking, like, the things that I felt about Trump supporters, literally, like, word for word, were the same things that she felt about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it was like political Mad Libs. Yeah, just... literally, literally <laughs> yeah. political Mad Libs. Like just replace the word, you know, yeah. with, with the noun of your choice. And basically we kept going on about these different topics and had this kind of reckoning to realize that both of us wanted the same thing. Mm. We, and both of us were unhappy in the system that we were being put in in these categories that we were being put in yeah. of you know like democratic or republican and, and i think something that a lot of us can relate to you know i will say like voting for biden like i wasn't ultra excited about voting for him i still am very critical of him i'm super grateful that he got elected i voted i did all my part to to push for the vote and she said i don't really like trump i really think he's a piece of shit but I feel like I have to vote for him because of X, Y, Z. And I said the same thing. I don't really like Biden, but I feel like I have to vote for him because X, Y, Z. And we had this moment of realizing both of us are incredibly unhappy. And in the system that we've been set up in as citizens, really, we're only taught to point right and left, right and left, right and left. And we're pointing at each other. When we do that, though, it really blocks us from pointing in the direction of the actual problem itself. Yes. And causes us to really demonize one another and not see each other's common humanity when there's a whole other system at play that is the problem. And Lisa Nichols has this great quote 
um, that I love. And I, I heard it way after this moment with her. And she said, anytime you're having these conversations, we have to remember that the common enemy is injustice, not one another. And that repositions you, right, from saying you're the problem or you're the problem to going, there's this third thing here that's created between us that's creating the issue. How do we adjust or impact that from our unique perspectives to create a world that's better for all of us? So that's the, that's the perspective that I'm interested in coming from these days. Yeah. And we were touching on this a little bit before we sat down, um, but as a technique, if you are brave and courageous enough to have these conversations, and in this particular case, it was imposed like yes. 13A and 13B, I'm <laughs> seated next door. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are ways that people can actively seek out these conversations. Now, yeah. like social media is a relatively dangerous sandbox. Because people say whatever um, the hell they want. Yeah, yeah. For public discourse. But you still can leverage your best intentions in that forum sometimes yeah uh the best are if you are able to find a situation where you can actually sit down with someone face to face which of course is increasingly difficult yeah. um, right now particularly during the pandemic but there are techniques that i have started to lean into on a relatively consistent basis and and the two that sort of spring to mind which i think speak to what your how you're describing the, the reframing of the conversation are one is sort of, I guess I would frame it as compassion. And then the other one is really asking the question behind the argument. Yeah. So I'll just elaborate on that just Please. for a moment. And you can really apply this thought experiment to sort of myriad political issues. But the one that we were talking about um, was like abortion, for example, or immigration is another one. Both topics that are generally quite incendiary. Um, abortion, potentially the most divisive um, social or cultural issue um, in the United States anyways. And, you know, you have this well-worn kind of dichotomy where on the right, um, you know, folks that are pro-life are kind of pointing at Democrats wondering how they cannot recognize and acknowledge the sanctity of human life. And there's tremendous moral indignation amongst those folks because for them, that is a core ethical belief that yeah. is grounded in deep morality. Yeah. And then, of course, on the left, you have folks that are pro-reproductive freedom or pro-choice, and they're looking at the right with the same kind of indignation, and they're saying, like, how can you not recognize or acknowledge or respect a woman's right to choose what happens to her own body? Yeah. Or that that decision should be made in private without governmental interference, or that legal abortion is really just safe abortion, you know. And for those folks, that is also a deeply moral belief. Yeah. And on that particular issue, in my estimation, and I think in a lot of people's estimations, both those moral beliefs are quite sound. Yeah. <laughs> so here what you have is a, um, if you're grounded in that polarized argument, it is not a particularly profitable project. You just don't no. get anywhere. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing when I say compassion is, 
is actually the recognition that there may be someone that you don't agree with, but that their decision making or their choice is grounded in a deep morality that you can also respect. Yeah. And then the other piece of it is then mutually engaging in some sort of um, project to ask the question behind the argument. And for me, in this particular um, debate, it's what are the conditions that would lead a woman to willfully terminate a pregnancy? Yeah. And when you ask that question, all of a sudden you're rooted in, in, a, in a dialogue that's very different. Yeah. It's actually rooted much more in compassion and, and because perhaps that woman, God forbid, was raped yeah. or she was a victim of incest or she has no financial wherewithal yeah. or her health may be compromised. She's in an abusive relationship or right, anything. The baby's so health things. might be compromised. Or she yeah. never was, had any access to family planning or contraception. Or, and there's, we could just keep going on and on about circumstances that would honestly like break your heart, you know? And the idea that then she would have to make that decision. And from that place, I think we can all recognize that it can be our common goal, a common solution to minimize abortion in every way that we can possibly. And that might be, you know, looking at the root causes of like, well, what what is the root cause of mental illness or male toxicity that would lead a man to engage in physically abusive or sexually abusive behavior? You know, can we not mutually agree on solutions oriented towards providing family planning services or wider access to mass contraception, yeah. et cetera? And I think, you know, you, you do this in your work is that you try to focus not on the calling out of people or the pointing of fingers, but actually the calling forward yeah. into solutions. So maybe you could expand yeah. and I love, on that. I love this example, Jeff, and even hearing you explain it again, you know, I'm feeling it more deeply because in the abor abortion example or any other issue that we take, right, what's happening on the surface level is again, this pointing right and left, this pointing right and left, pointing right and left. and we don't need to be pointing right and left. We need to be pointing forward. Like we need to be pointing forward and what's going to move us forward. And when I say us, I don't mean just the people who are like us, right? Because <laughs> that's what's happening right now. It's like, oh, the Democrats have won. Oh, now the Republicans are taking a lead. You know, oh, yeah. you know it's like this, 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 this sports <laughs> literally game. Literally horse race. Yeah, yeah literally, literally yeah. like back and forth and back yeah. and forth. But what is it that can take all of us forward? And that is the conversation that I want to get into. And it, and it makes me really love the angle that you take because it reminds me of um, something that I taught in the Healing Conversations course, which is about listening. And a big part of conversations, we forget about this part often, is the listening piece, right? And we all want to like talk. And one of the things that I talk about is uh, the difference between listening to, listening for, and listening from. And listening to, very simple, like we're, we're you're listening to me talk right now, you're listening to the content that I'm speaking about right now, and just listening to what I'm saying. And then listening for is a little bit different because you could be hearing everything that I'm saying, but then what are you listening for? 
Like, mm. are you listening for the, the compassion? Right. Are you listening for the trigger or whatever? Whatever. It is. Yeah. yeah. And, and that is where the listening from part even comes from because listening from is the perspective from which we're already listening before the person even starts talking. Mm. Right. So, like, when I sat next to Trump supporter woman next to me, I already had a listening from perspective that I knew that she was going to be speaking from. So no matter what the hell she said, I was already hearing it through my listening from perspective that right. I was already listening from. She was just there to confirm a bias that you already had. Exactly. Her, and then yeah. and then the listening for is like, well, I'm because of that perspective, I'm listening to confirm <laughs> that she's a racist and that yeah. she's this and that. And based on what I was listening to and what she said, if I didn't switch my perspective to say, I'm listening for the commonality. Mm. I'm listening for the space of connection. If I didn't do that from the beginning, I could have instantly been triggered and we would have both been kicked off the flight. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, and, and so, because when she says like, well, I think Black Lives Matter is one of the most racist things like messing up our country. like. If I was listening for proving her to be the enemy, then that's what I would have done instantly in that moment and shut, you know, had to shut it down and change seats. So, you know, I think we have a lot of work that we can do and that our community, the community who's listening to this podcast and watching everything that we're doing in the programs and the courses, like our community is the best community to do this work. Like, because we, have already done so much work, hopefully, many of us yeah. on ourselves to learn how to hold the space inside of ourselves for this kind of deep work to be happening anyway. It's just now it has to happen with someone else as well. Yeah. There's another technique that I've tried to employ more recently. I hate to frame it as technique because it yeah. feels like very cold and officious, yeah. but, um, but it's just something that I've tried to hone in myself uh, as it pertains to listening so you know like you I, I write a lot and um and this summer during uh or this past summer during kind of post george floyd as the the world exploded around a reckoning for for racial and social justice um, i was writing ar around that topic quite a bit uh, as like a white man which is almost like walking a tightrope over Very a tight third to walk on <laughs> over a third rail yeah and but you know i did have to write 2500 words every sunday so and i wasn't going to ignore it um and i wrote about um independence day and i called it interdependence day because I remember that and um and i got a very very critical email from an african-american woman who um really derided me for even using the words Independence Day. Mm. And she was like, this was never Independence Day for me. Mm. I was never granted those rights, mm. um, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, you know, which is this, what we commemorate July 4th for. Yeah. And, and, and really called me out. And, uh, and this was just on email. And my first... Um, my first impulse was to be a little bit defensive. Of course. And then it was just like, come on. Like you've said, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to have done this work, right? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, just breathe. 
and just have and write back with compassion and, and understanding, even if you're not 100% there yet. Yeah. Because for me, I was like, well, this is just the vocabulary I have to, to use. And, uh, and we had an exchange and I was like, listen, here's my phone number. Just give me a call. Wow. And I was like, and in a way, I wasn't sure if she was going to, and I'm not sure that was completely fair because I just put her on the spot, but she did. Wow. And I picked up the phone and I just listened for an hour. Wow. And, um, and what emerged was actually had nothing to do with the article. Of course. She was just beautifully articulated essentially her whole life story. And as she was talking about her life, I was listening intently and I realized we had a lot in common. Mm. Like both of our families were from Chicago. We had both driven across country a number of times. And I, I just started, as she was talking, I started sort of like tabulating all of these things that we had in common. And finally, sort of she got to the end and she needed a breath. And I was like, that's so incredible because, you know, my parents were from Chicago too. And I drove across country and my truck actually broke down in Texas just the way you're, you know, oh we gosh. just, we found these things that seemed banal or yeah. maybe superfluous, but they formed a means for connection. Yeah. And, and you were listening for that. That's, and yeah. that's what I'm saying. So yeah. I was, and, um, and I wasn't as aware of this kind of technique, but really, and then from there, we just had this kind of like beautiful, effusive, vibrant exchange. And then of course there was quite a few tears mm -hmm. and then she's just become my super buddy. And we like text <laughs> all the time <laughs> and she's like, yo, check out this video. No, no, no. You know, we're back and forth on text all the time now, yeah. which is very sweet. Um, but uh, I realized that that is that we do have so much in common. Yeah. Once we kind of get, we step outside of the invective. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, again, it takes a certain amount of time and, and courage um, to do that. But I think it all comes down, as, as I know you do too, to a lot of these conversations that feel small because they're one-on-one, -on -one, but they're so Humongous. important. Yeah. And, and it's easy to kind of get overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. Yeah. But just there is a power that we all have to impact the world around us. And, you know, we're just, the human condition is just an aggregate of a billion little actions and decisions. So yeah. we can be part of those. No, I mean, and, and the conversation that you're having and all the conversations that I think so many of us want to have, right? There's so many of us who want to have conversations with our family members and our friends and our coworkers. And sometimes on a larger scale, we want to have conversations with our government or with you know, police or on, on so many different levels. And there's a lot of fear. And I yeah. understand why, because there's a fear of getting it wrong. There's a fear of it turning back on you. There's a fear of ruining your relationships. There's a fear and all that. And that's exactly why I created the Healing Conversations course. Like yeah. it's literally the reason why, because I wanted to give people a template and roadmaps to know how to have the conversation, to feel like you could have some support. Yeah. 
I'd love to, you know, get your viewpoint on quote unquote cancel culture mm. <laughs> because, you yeah. know, a, a lot of people have a lot of different things to say about it. Some people are like, well, we're just holding people accountable for their actions. Yeah. Other people are like, wait a minute. Yeah. This is supposed to be a marketplace of ideas. Yeah. So that the best ones can rise to the top. Um, but a lot of people are hesitant and reticent to express themselves because that might not age well on Twitter or, or whatever it is. So I'm yeah. curious kind of where... Well, okay, so I want to speak about it this way first because it'll give people a better context of why I come from the perspective that I come from. So you had mentioned a moment ago calling out and calling forward. Hmm. And I think that's a really important topic to cover in this context because... You know, we've heard of these words like calling out, which means naming something that somebody did wrong publicly. And then you have calling in, which means naming something that somebody did wrong privately. So, you know, pulling them one-on-one -on -one and not doing it publicly. And what I truly believe is that neither of those two methods work at all if you're doing it with shame and blame. And for, so number one, if you're doing with shame and blame, and number two, if you're not calling people forward, we have to be calling people forward. And what I mean by forward is what are we moving into? And I think in the graduation and the evolution of what we're experiencing in what I think now is really like the adolescence or elementary of, um, like social justice and speaking, speaking up is our first stage, like our elementary school stage is what I've been calling like naming. And we hear this all the time. Like, I just have to name, mm -hmm. you know, I just have to name that this is how I feel. And I think that's great. Like great first step, like let's name how we feel. And I think that's again, as with our internal work that we do on ourselves, that's kind of the first step, like the awareness of what you're feeling. And so naming what we feel has been an important first step. The second step to me now that we're graduating to is going from naming to inviting. And so how do we, sure, name what we feel, hold people accountable, help them understand what's been done wrong? Because from my perspective, I can see so many people have done harm, but the context of the world that they were living at that time was completely different. And oftentimes the harm, this is not every time, so I'm not excusing everybody, but oftentimes people didn't even know they were causing the harm. Mm, like yeah. I really had no clue, you know? And I'm not saying that they should always be just excused for that and not held accountable or that I'm condoning it. But what I'm saying is in all of our naming, we have to be able to hold the space to invite the person forward into something greater. So how can we say what's wrong, but also hold space for the vision and possibility of growth and change? And so as it comes to cancel culture and, you know, all the, all the things, I think people need to be given an opportunity to make amends and to grow and change. And I see there's these, it's really interesting because we have, I'll just say there's, it feels like there's a lot of, people making remarks and statements that don't correlate or correspond with each other. No, that's not the right words. That don't, they just don't make sense. I'm trying to say it a lot more diplomatically than that. So for yeah. example, we have this movement in Florida for convicted felons to yeah. get their right to vote again after they've served their term. 
right? And so like welcome them back to society. Like let's give them a chance, even though they've done something horrible sometimes. Like let's give them a chance to participate in democracy because they've served their time. They've done it, you know? And then on the same hand, we have the, some of the same people saying, well, this person said this one thing, cancel them forever, you know? And so, okay, like, hmm, how, does, how do these two things live in the same brain, right. you know? And this is something that we have to reconcile with. And I think what's happening, honestly, Jeff, is <laughs> we're, we're like, we're evolving and learning how to even hold all of this ourselves because we have these conflicting beliefs that quite frankly are not even our own beliefs sometimes. They're just what we're told we think we're supposed to believe because of what we've seen on social media or on Twitter or whatever somebody else says that we're supposed to believe. So anyway, I know that was a kind of a loaded way to answer that, but. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I've been following that particular proposition that then became an amendment for, I think, or in, in Florida, and then subsequently the governor said, well, sure, but only if the can, the felons pay back right. all of their fines. All their fines. And it's just like, that, it, it's that such became a, a threshold that became ridiculously high. And then, you know, Bloomberg pledged a bunch of money for it. And then people were arguing about that, you know, yeah. it's just, but I, um, I'm curious how you would call this dynamic forward and let me just kind of set set the stage set yeah. the stage a tiny bit so kind of particularly over this summer um when there's kind of an efflorescence of, of anti-racism and ibram kendi and really taking the definition and the notion of racism and in some ways broadening it to a, a, a wider definition um, for and applying it um, really to any that 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 being racist wasn't a noun it was like an adjective and that on any given any I think what he talks about it it's a sticker that you can peel on and peel off and on some days you know you might be you know in alignment with anti-racism and other days you might not be perfect but that if you are not engaged in an effort to disband um, policies and structures that produce inequity, then you're probably wearing that racism sticker. That, and I think that this became a, a source of a lot of controversy over the past summer and certainly leading into the election, because certainly there are a lot of people particularly white, working-class, rural people that felt attacked just by the notion of their politics and not for necessarily any reprehensible act Mm -hmm. that they have engaged in. Mm -hmm. So, And I've had a lot of these conversations with particularly white women, poor, working-class, rural, who are saying like, I'm working two minimum wage jobs as a single mother living in a trailer. I'm barely getting by. And you're over there calling me racist. Like, that is the worst thing you could call me. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and I'm trying to 
get my head around how you call how you call that dynamic forward where on one hand it is extremely important to re-educate people around real history and to get people to stand firmly and honestly in their privilege and to acknowledge inequity and racism where it exists and then at the same time while that's a massively important project, you also have people that have lived experiences that are also suffering and do not like the rubric of racism being thrust upon them. Yeah. And so how do we call, because that's a prevalent dynamic yeah. right now. It's a huge one. <laughs> and it, it's one that we're seeing like within families, you know, like right away I have so many friends who are like, my parents, you know, right. but right. when we go home, we just don't talk about, you know, right. we're like don't say anything because, you know, whatever. And this is a big one. And I think, okay, so, so first and foremost, number one tenet and rule of calling people forward is you have to, you have to drop the shame and the blame. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. And not just in like a woo woo spiritual, like, let's be nice kind of a way. It's, the actual brain, the neuroscience of it shows when you shame and blame somebody, it actually shuts down the centers of the brain that allow any sort of learning or growth and it immediately causes you to feel defensive. Be that's beyond our emotional desire. You know, it's just like the way our brains work, the way we're wired as humans. So the first thing you have to do is stop calling people racist right away. I mean, that it's just, think about, it's just the most, yeah. if you, Okay, so <laughs> I get really passionate about this yeah, because mm, while I think it's important to call a thing a thing and call out the problem, and while I think it's been incredibly important in the waking people up to have kind of the shock value of saying you're racist, you know, I think that's been a great start to kind of shake up the whole system. Now the system is being shooken or has been shooken shooketh, I'll say. <laughs> and, yeah. and now we want to think about what is our goal? When you're having a conversation like this, you have to be really honest with yourself. Yeah. What's the goal of the conversation? Is the goal just for you to be heard? Is the goal for you to be right? Is the goal to try to change the other person's mind? Or is the goal to try to find a space of connection and commonality? right? Because if we can find that space of connection and commonality, now we can walk forward together. Now we can start to see things from one another's perspective. Now we can actually have a conversation where you kind of drop your guard and go, oh, I'd never thought of it that way, mm -hmm. you know? And, but without that space of compassion and connection, that dynamic can never occur. It just won't occur. And so we have to stop leading with the blame. Mm -hmm. And I think right now in the, I'll say this, the Ibra, like everyone in the world who's done this work is incredible, absolute leaders in the field. I would never say anything to argue against them for one second because I think it's amazing. And when we look back on this moment in history, we're going to recognize that this is the first time ever that there has been New York Times best-selling books on anti-racism and all this kind of stuff. So these are really the 
early days. This is like the renaissance of, you know, like racial justice education, really. And so what I think we'll start seeing as we continue to move forward is ways to actually help facilitate the conversation to help it move forward. So to answer your, continue answering your question, it's thinking about what's your goal. And if the goal is to call them forward, then we have to go back to what we talked about. What are we listening for? We're listening for the space of commonality and connection. In this case, two communities of people who both feel incredibly unseen, who feel like the government is not supporting them, who feel like they're working their ass off and have no time for themselves and nobody's supporting them. Wow, that's a whole lot of connection right right there, right? And then we start to ask, what is a world that we want to see where we can both have all of our needs met and be in a space of connection and possibility and liberation? It sounds like, like, (laughs) sure, like utopia, right? But the truth is, if we don't start putting our minds in that space of what does it look like to create an integrated world where we know that it's not that we just have to all become one. I don't like this we are all one stuff. I don't think oneness is really the value that we should be aiming towards. I think the value we should be aiming towards is intimacy. That's that's really the work is being able to be intimate enough with somebody which requires the vulnerability and the listening and the connection and the compassion so that you can let them have their differences and know that in those differences we're actually stronger when we come together in those different points of view as long as we can have respect and love and connection and kindness towards one another. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so I'll say this, you know, the conversations themselves are like situation to situation, but there are some tenets and rules that have to be followed if you want that conversation to go anywhere at all. And that's kind of what I'm interested in right now is helping people understand what is it that you, as an individual who wants to have this conversation, excuse me, (laughs) what is it that you, as an individual who wants to have this conversation, what do you need to embody and know and do and not do if you even want to have the potential to call this conversation forward. And I'll leave you with one last piece. The like final kind of thing on my list, especially in the, in the Healing Conversations course about um, calling forward is expect the conversation to be left unfinished. Mm. That's always like rule number one for me. And it's because we so often want to go into the conversation and know that we have changed somebody right then that we've gotten our solution, that they hear us and now they're on our side. But a part of calling forward is that we're each taking this step together. And at the end of the conversation, you should already expect that you're gonna feel like, oh, I don't even know if anything even happened. But if the connection is the goal, then we have a different rubric that we're working for from the conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's that's an excellent point. You don't necessarily have to reach some sort of transcendent conclusion it's actually just the process of being able to connect in a way that that recognizes common humanity the woman you know i'll just say the woman that i sat next to on the flight i'm pretty sure she still voted for trump oh yeah you know and like i voted for biden you know and but we had this moment where i think she got to really see like oh wow 
you know, like I'm, I, I know with certainty that she left that conversation changed yeah. and probably brought it into her or into her communities as well. Yeah. Um, there is a phenomenon that I've noticed in my own life over now three decades. So I've been married for 30, well, been married for 25 years. I've been with my wife for 32 years and we agree on everything. We never argue. No. So we've been arguing um, mm -hmm. vehemently for a, a great majority of that time about one thing or another. And, um, and she's a, you know, a woman of prolific opinion. Um, and, you know, I'll hold my own the best I can um, and, and be strident and strong in, in my beliefs. And then, you know, the next day I'll turn around and have a conversation about the topic that, that my wife and I argued about. And I'll begin almost subconsciously to integrate many of her arguments mm. into my own. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to actually um, reflect or realize that I was doing that. And, uh, and then there was this technique that got called forth um, when I was watching. I sometimes spend endless time on YouTube watching these long debates okay um which is a whole i don't know where thing. you find the time to do that it's yeah amazing. i don't yeah, yeah. but um <laughs> yeah there was this one uh debate between sam harris who is a kind of intellectual meditator and this guy jordan peterson who you, you may know who i i take plenty of issue with but regardless <laughs> they engage in these like six hour debates on on youtube sometimes and halfway through the middle in the middle they engage in this process called steel manning, which I had never heard about, but it essentially is a technique, a debate technique that ha uh, sprung forth out of straw manning. A straw man argument is essentially one that you prop up a straw man, someone makes a point, and in order to refute that point, you don't actually address the point. Mm. You, you, you prop up a straw man and you knock it down because the straw man's easy to knock down. And you've basically been like, well, I refuted you, but you really never did because you right. never addressed the point. So steel manning is sort of the opposite of that, where if we were to have an argument or a debate about something, then we would stop and I would have to recite your position the best part of your position as well as you recited it to me mm. so i have to embody the best part of your opinions and then actually articulate them wow and it is a really fascinating process Sub subsequently i've engaged in that a couple of times and what it really ends up doing i mean there is a obviously a listening component to it there is then a deciphering of like, well, I didn't really agree with what most of Justin said, but those two or three points, like that's pretty good. And, um, and so, um, so then that, that becomes part of, uh, of that technique. And really what it often does is it, it forces you to, to re-examine your own opinions and yeah. gird them in, in, in concrete yeah. in a way um, that you might not otherwise have to. So it's a, it's an yeah. interesting, um, thought experiment or, or game. I play. love that. So we I, can try, we can try that sometime. Okay. Yeah. No, I love that. Actually. I think that, you know, hats off to you and your wife for being able to do that for all that time. And, yeah. you know, and I also think about recently, I saw a post on, um, on Instagram where somebody was being critical of Barack Obama. 
and all these people on, and not critical in a way that was like shaming or demeaning, just like very politically a smart, savvy person being critical. And then you have like all these people like yeah. saying, hey, how could you be critical of him? You know, like da da da. And then they said, which I thought was really powerful, I need you all to notice what's happening right now. The way that we are with Obama, that some people are, like, you can, he can never be wrong. Like, you can't say anything bad about him. Like, he just has come to save the day. And the, a lot of people in the black community are like this with Obama. Yeah. He said, this is exactly what Trump supporters feel about Trump. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's like, blinders are on. You can't say anything bad. It's like Obama and Beyonce. You know, it's like you cannot <laughs> say anything bad. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's true or false or whatever, like nothing bad. Yeah. And so Trump has that aspect to him as well. And it, it, when I heard that, it gave me a deeper understanding where sometimes I'm, I know people who are Trump supporters and I'm thinking, how? Like, right. I really am like, how? And then when I heard that remark, I said, that's how. Mm -hmm. That's how, because you're choosing to turn, you're literally choosing to turn off all the things that you don't like. Just like I've turned off several of the things that I haven't liked about Obama and who and Beyonce and whoever else. Not yeah. that there's anything that I don't like about Beyonce. Well, but. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I suppose the asymmetry there is yeah. that Obama w it was actually very open to constructive criticism. Right, right, um, right, right. Where, right. Mr. Trump doesn't yeah, particularly I don't like want to that compare the, the two of them at all but, and say that they're the same, but you know. But no, no, yeah. I, I think the the fervent belief um, amongst the core supporters is certainly there uh, on on both sides. And this yeah. is the and this is the the project that we share is how can we um, how can we thaw that ice? Yeah. Um, because kind of to to come full circle, so much of um of the challenge so many of the challenges that are in front of us are completely reliant on us being able to find degrees of common ground and cooperation yeah and you know i look at at covid um and you know we, we've seen countries around the world who have really marshaled social cohesion and really and unification and asked for a lot of sacrifice and and those citizenries have not always been happy all the time but there are you know taiwan and japan and new zealand and norway and other countries who have essentially completely eliminated the virus yeah. without a vaccine yeah um and you know in our country in the united states i really I, obviously, the virus is serious in and of itself, but I think that the undermining of social cohesion is actually the real problem because we were never able to unify around a plan. And yeah. you can point your finger at leadership, you can point your finger in a whole lot of different directions, the rugged individualism of the United States or whatever, but people on all sides are patriotic. Yeah. But we need to find ways to talk to each other to find these solutions, and um, and COVID in a way is sort of the is the elephant in the room, you know, right yeah. now. But this is uh, this is such important work. Yeah. So um, you know, I think it is really fascinating because I saw a video one of my friends posted, you know, from Australia the other day, and they were at a music festival, and yeah. I looked at this and I was like. 
this is now? Like, yeah. they were like shirtless at a music festival, like everyone <laughs> hugging, like concert, people on people's shoulders, no masks. Yeah. And, you know, she was like, we have had like no COVID cases in two months. Yeah. You know, like this is, the United States is a mess, <laughs> you know? And, but in all seriousness, I think, Jeff, what I know to be true is that most people are good. Most people are good. They want to be better. And sometimes they just don't know. And if we can't show up in a space to let people learn and give people the opportunity to, to move forward and to step forward, then we're going to just keep butting heads and just keep battling each other. And right now, you know, I, I constantly try to be in the question, always. Anytime I'm going through a challenge in my life, I ask the question, what is my soul trying to learn? What's it trying to learn right now from this situation? And I think a big piece of what the soul of humanity and especially of the United States of America is trying to learn is that we have to come together. We have to unite in our common humanity. These socially constructed, complete fabrications of race and these different things that we've created are ripping us apart and destroying our humanity and the planet. And so are we going to come together or not? You know, because, you know, the earth is going to be here. Yeah. Whether we are or not is a whole different story. Yeah, yeah that is the reframing of the existential question. Yeah. It's not save the planet. It, it's save, save the humans, the humans. on the planet. Yeah, the yeah. earth is going to be like, <laughs> yeah. okay, y'all, gone, you know. Anyway, but I, um, I just know that people are good. And as much as we see of the extreme polarization on the news and in the media, that is absolutely not, I don't think, most of our experience in, <clears throat> in life. And yeah. so we have to find that common ground to come together. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Justin Michael Williams. You can pre-register for free access to Justin's course, Healing Conversations, at onecommune.com healing. And feel free to drop me a line anytime with comments or suggestions at jeffk at onecommune.com. That's it from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Mm-hmm.